Thank you so much. It is such a joy to be here. Uh, my own family's connection to the Masters University goes back a long way to 1987 when my father-in-law joined the faculty, the Bible faculty of the Masters College at that time, C.W. Smith. And um, my, yeah, there you go, C.W. <laughs> my wife uh, worked here for a time as well, and I had the privilege of teaching some classes and uh, now my daughters are here, so we love the fact that uh, the Lord has connected us here. And it's a joy to serve on the board and to be a part of what the Lord is doing uh, through this place and through the people that God has brought here. It's also a joy to be here for this occasion. I thank Dr. MacArthur and those who invited me to come and be a part of this, this wonderful time, the Truth and Life Conference, when you reflect as you sort of prepare your own hearts for the new semester and, and for, in a larger sense, life as you think about those things that are crucial to be, to be believed and to be practiced, truth and life. To try to capture the heart of the Reformation, the Reformers adopted a motto. The city of Geneva emblazoned that motto on its coins, and it still appears on the Reformation wall in the city of Geneva to this day. That motto that captured the heart of the Reformation it's contained in these Latin words, post tenebras lux, which being translated means after darkness, light. After darkness, light. You see, in the Reformation, the light of Scripture emerged from the darkness of medieval Roman Catholicism. The Reformation was really the dawn of the quest to recover the faith once for all delivered to the saints as it is revealed in Holy Scripture. It was the expository preaching of men like Calvin and Luther and Zwingli that led to the recovery of the biblical truths that had long been forgotten. And the key truths that the Reformers recovered from the darkness are captured in the theme of this conference, what we call today the five solas of the Reformation. Now let me point out that it's really important when you think about the solas that in every case you emphasize the word sola because that was the difference between the Roman Catholic position and the Protestant position, the biblical position. Because the Roman Catholic Church taught and still teaches that that the Scripture is an authority. It still teaches that salvation is by grace and it's through faith and it, it's through the work of Christ and God receives the glory. What differentiated the Reformation and the teaching that was recovered is that in each case, those things were alone. Sola Scriptura. Our ultimate authority is not tradition or popes, or councils, but it is the Scripture alone. Solus Christus. God justifies us based not on our own righteousness in any way, but based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, on His work. Sola Fide. God justifies us not because of any human works of any kind, but by faith alone. Sola gratia, we are saved from God's wrath, not because of our own initiative in pursuing God or our own merit in achieving something before God, but by sovereign grace alone. And soli deo gloria, God both created us and redeemed us, and he did it in such a way so that we would receive no glory, but all the glory would go to God alone. Those are the truths that are at the bedrock of the Reformation that came from the darkness into the light. Sadly, and you see this, and this is the reason for this conference, sadly today's church has drifted away from these bedrock truths. They're slipping back, churches everywhere, into the darkness of error and ignorance. So the goal of this Truth in Life conference is to deepen our knowledge of and to reignite our passion for these foundational truths. And of course, the ultimate goal of this conference, if, if what those who put it together 
have prayed for happens in your heart, then here's what will happen. We will treasure these five solas. We will proclaim them. We will defend them against all error, and we will pass them on to the next generation. Soli Deo, Gloria. Now, we begin this morning with what is called the formal principle of the Reformation. It is the principle that, that forms or shapes or gives direction to the discussion about all of the rest of the issues at stake in the Reformation. Of course, as you know, that is sola scriptura, or Scripture alone. Now, at the heart of the Reformation, it's, it's important for you to understand this, at the heart of the Reformation, there were two key questions. These are the same two questions between biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism today. The two questions are these. How is a person made right with God? How is an individual, how does that individual come to a right standing before God? And the Reformers' answer to that was that the Scripture teaches by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So four of the solas were really an answer to that first question. How is a person made right with God? The second key question in the Reformation was what is the source of special revelation and what is the ultimate standard for spiritual authority or of spiritual authority? And the Reformers answered that, of course, with sola scriptura. Now understand that in each case, the solas, including sola scriptura, were a response they were a response of a biblical understanding of the truths against the error of Roman Catholicism, and this one as well. Because the Roman Catholic Church taught in the 16th century that the ultimate authority for faith and practice, listen carefully, the ultimate authority resides equally in two sources, Scripture and Tradition. Here's the Council of Trent, a, a mid-16th century response to the Protestant Reformation, really encapsulating what the Church of Rome taught. Quote, this synod receives and venerates with an equal affection, an equal affection and reverence all the books, both of the Old and the New Testament, as also the traditions, those oral Unwritten traditions, they said, had been passed along by apostolic succession from the time of Christ. Equal devotion and reverence. Now, in case you think that that has changed, here's a quote from the Roman Catholic Catechism of 1984. Quote, The church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Couldn't be any clearer than that goes on to say, both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Both Scripture and these unwritten oral traditions that supposedly have been passed along through the centuries. The Reformers argued in response to that Catholic position that since the canon of Scripture is complete, the only source of special revelation, the only source and the only standard for determining what we believe and what we practice is Scripture alone. Not Scripture and tradition, but Scripture alone. Both the Baptist Confession as well as the Westminster Confession, summarizing the truths that were captured out of the Reformation in the 1600s, put it this way. This is the Westminster Confession. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, everything, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. The larger catechism 
puts it this way, the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the Word of God, the only, the only rule of faith and practice. Now, in the 16th century, the debate over sola scriptura focused primarily on three issues. First of all, the uniqueness of Scripture alone as the source of divine revelation. The uniqueness of the Scripture alone as the only source of divine revelation versus the Roman Catholic Church's tradition and all of the things that they brought in through tradition. And the other attack of the, Re- the Reformers was against what they called the fanatics with their mysticism and extra-biblical revelation. No, it's the source of divine revelation is the Scripture alone. The, the second issue at stake in Sola Scriptura in the 16th century was not only the source of divine revelation, but the authority of Scripture alone over our faith and practice. And that was held versus the authority of church councils and popes and the magisterium, the church's ruling body's interpretation of the Scripture. And finally, the other issue, and this is really key, and in some ways it lies at the foundation of them all, The real issue, I think, at the heart of Sola Scriptura was the sufficiency of Scripture alone as the only necessary resource for our spiritual lives versus mysticism, versus tradition, and extra-biblical revelation. So that's what Sola Scriptura is about. We could rightly examine any one of those three issues the source of divine revelation, the authority of Scripture alone, the sufficiency of Scripture alone, we could examine any one of those and legitimately be addressing sola scriptura this morning. But in light of the, the invitation that I received and the idea that we are to, I was to focus this topic on not only an understanding of what happened in the Reformation, but how it practically applies to you, to me, today, I want us to look at one of those avenues because most of us here this morning are not tempted to question the uniqueness of Scripture as the source of divine revelation. Most of us are not tempted to question Scripture as the unique authority in our lives. And so I have to agree with James Montgomery Boyce who wrote this, in Martin Luther's day, sola scriptura had to do with the Bible being the sole ultimate authority of Christians. Today, at least in the evangelical church, that is not our chief problem. Our problem is in deciding whether the Bible is sufficient. You see, the real attack on sola scriptura for most evangelicals, and in a subtle way in our lives, is on the issue of the sufficiency of the Scripture. You live in a day when the Christian landscape is littered with cheap, tawdry additions to Scripture. By their practice, many show that they believe the Bible is simply not enough, although they would never say that. For example, some believe the Bible is not enough, so they pursue mysticism. They want God to speak to them subjectively through supposed voices or feelings or impressions rather than through what Luther called the external word. Others show they believe the Bible is not enough by seeking charismatic experiences. Rather than focus on God's objective revelation in the Scripture, they focus on extra-biblical ecstatic experiences, and that becomes the, the true nature of a deep spirituality. Still others believe the Bible isn't enough, so they look to secular psychology. They imply that before Freud, we really didn't understand man's true needs or how those needs could be met. In effect, the Scripture is sufficient for salvation, but we need secular psychology to enable sanctification. I think the new authority in the world you live in is cultural consensus. This has become the new authority, even in the church, sadly, on moral and ethical issues of our time. It's democracy on steroids. Not only do we get to vote for our representatives, we get to vote on morality. Sadly, 
Those are just a few. There are countless substitutes for Scripture. But in contrast to all those who argue or imply that the Bible is not enough, the Bible itself relentlessly maintains that it is sufficient. There are several texts that tempted me this morning. One of them would be the statement of our Lord. Our Lord affirms sola scriptura in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, where he affirmed the, what you have in your scripture called the Old Testament. He affirmed it to be the very word of God down to the smallest letter or the smallest distinguishing stroke of a letter, like the difference between our capital O in English and our capital Q Every stroke breathed out by God, our Lord affirmed that. Probably the most familiar text that we could go to this morning to drive home the point of sola scriptura and the sufficiency of scripture is 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul tells Timothy, the sacred writings are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The scripture is able to lead you to salvation Verse 16 of that same chapter, all Scripture is inspired. By the way, that's, a, that's an unfortunate translation, as I'm sure you've heard the word inspired. comes from the Latin, inspirato. The actual word, the Greek word, means to breathe out. In other words, the Scripture is the very product of the breath of God, just like the words I'm speaking right now are the product of my breath. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate. Doesn't sound really impressive, does it? Adequate. The Greek word is used only here in the New Testament. It means capable, proficient, able to meet all demands. And the word of God is able to make you equipped means fully equipped, fully supplied. The word equipped was used in secular Greek to describe a wagon that was fully outfitted, fully supplied. Scripture fully supplies us for every good work. The Bible teaches that it is sufficient. You need no other resource for salvation, for sanctification, or to be equipped as a Christian. It is enough this morning, I want us to see this principle borne out in an Old Testament passage. The very first psalm, where I invite you to turn with me this morning, the first psalm teaches sola scriptura. It calls each of us to hold fast to the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, Listen carefully because I think this is really important for us in a conference on the solas to understand. Sola Scriptura, and the other solas for that matter, sola scriptura is not just a corporate doctrine to be understood and believed. It is an individual commitment to be made. And that's what we're called to do here in Psalm 1. Now, just to give you the context, the purpose of the book of Psalms is to provide us with a divinely intended record and pattern of man expressing himself to God. Psalm 1 was probably written as an introduction to the rest of the Psalter. In fact, Charles Spurgeon writes, Psalm 1 is the text of which the rest of Psalms is a sermon. It is truly introductory. Most conservative scholars attribute it either to David or to Solomon. It's one of the wisdom psalms intended to guide us in the path of divine wisdom. Let's read it together. Familiar words, but read it as I read it. You read it in your heart and try to read it as if you'd never seen it before. Listen to what God says. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous 
For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now the theme of that brief psalm is clear. There are only two paths in life. In verses 1 to 3, there is the way of the righteous. In verses 4 and 5, there's the way of the wicked. And in verse 6, there is the end of those two ways. But I want you to notice in verse 1 the surprising way that the psalmist introduces the righteous man. He says, blessed, how blessed is the man. Now what's surprising about that is the Hebrew word that he uses. There are two Hebrew words that are translated blessed in our English text. The first is barach. It refers to God's blessing someone. That's the word we normally think of. That's not the word used here. The second Hebrew word, and the one that is used in this text, is esherei. Esherei occurs 45 times in the Old Testament. It is never once used of God, of something God does. This is not God blessing. This is instead a strictly human conclusion. This word describes another human being inspecting the life of the righteous person and coming to this conclusion. How blessed! Oh, to be envied! How completely happy is that person? As our Lord began the Sermon on the Mount, He used the same Greek word that the Septuagint uses here in Psalm 1. The man who is Esherai, the word that's used here, if you look at it in the rest of the Old Testament, the man who is Esherai enjoys an objective state of well-being. And that objective state of well-being is accompanied by subjective feelings of satisfaction and joy and delight. As Bruce Waltke writes, the sages reserve the exclamation Esherai for people who experience life as the Creator intended. In verse 3, the psalmist shows us exactly what this state of well-being looks like. Notice, he defines what it means to be Esherai in verse 3 using a word picture. He says, the man who is Esherai, the man who has an enviable life, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Notice, notice the image there. The man who is Esherai is filled with a strong spiritual life. He is alive and bearing fruit. He lives unlike the wicked who is nothing but dead, lifeless chaff. Notice he's also carefully cared for by God. Literally, the Hebrew text says he is transplanted by irrigation canals. He is transplanted by irrigation canals. Now, that's a really important statement because dead chaff, those who have previously been the wicked and dead chaff, they don't become a living tree planted by a water source by themselves. This is a picture of sovereign grace. And notice he goes on to say, this person fulfills the purpose for which God made him and brings lasting benefit to all those around him. He bears his fruit in his season. And he has permanence. His faith endures. He's spiritually stable. Notice his leaf doesn't wither. In other words, in hard times, when drought comes, he remains spiritually strong. And then, the end of verse 3, the psalmist leaves that image and just bluntly says, whatever he does, in that he will prosper. Whatever his external circumstances may be, this man's soul prospers and thrives. Let me ask you, do you want to have that kind of life? I know you do. Most of you, that's why you're here. Psalm 1 tells us how. Psalm 1 tells us there are only two paths in life, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And the way of the righteous, don't miss this, is the way of the Bible. And the way of the wicked is everything else. That's it. 
The way of the righteous is the way of Scripture alone, and the way of the wicked is everything else. Now, the psalmist develops his point negatively in verse 1 and then positively in verse 2. He identifies here for us two foundational commitments that those who are truly righteous, and as we've discovered, that already implies here sovereign grace. They have been moved from dead chaff to a living tree cared for by God. Those who are truly righteous like that make two foundational commitments. They're commitments you need to make. If you're going to live a life characterized by sola scriptura, then you must make these commitments. Commitment number one, you must abandon every human way. You must abandon every human way. Verse one, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Now you'll notice there is walk, stand, and sit. It's possible those three expressions picture a kind of progression of sin from walking to standing to sitting. And obviously, Scripture does teach that sin is a downward spiral, a a downward slide, but that's probably not the point here. Notice those are the three postures of those who are awake If you're not asleep, you're walking, you're standing, or you're sitting. The point is that in the whole of this man's waking life, whether he's walking or standing or sitting, the righteous man has nothing to do with these things. The Hebrew grammar, by the way, reinforces this idea as well. The tense of all three of these verbs speaks of one who avoids these things as the habit and custom of his life. He entirely abandons them. So what does the righteous man abandon? Well, he abandons every human way, but let's see how that's laid out and how that's filled out. First of all, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The word counsel has to do with how we think. It means, literally, to give advice in the making of decisions. The same Hebrew word appears in in Exodus chapter 18, verse 19, where you remember Jephro gives advice to Moses on how to relieve his heavy administrative burden. It's a word that means advice. So by the counsel of the wicked, the psalmist meant we should not listen to or follow the advice, the counsel of those who regularly break God's Torah. The righteous do not, as a habit and custom of life, walk in the counsel, in the advice of those who disregard God's law. Now, let's be honest with ourselves. We all follow the advice of the people around us, even those who are not in Christ, in many harmless ways. For example, how we do our hair. I look out here and the hairstyles are much different than they were 30 years ago. You wouldn't think of being caught in a 30-year-old hairstyle because you're following the counsel of the world around you. A lot of uh, men today wear facial hair. Why is that suddenly the rage? Because that's the, that's the counsel, that's the advice. We even follow the thinking of our times in terms of how we dress, the clothes we wear. I learned this uh, vividly a few years ago when uh, my girls once told me in horror that I was about to leave the house in something that was so 90s. Now, I didn't know all that that meant, but it was very clear that this was very bad. (laughs) Why do we make the kinds of choices that we make in those kinds of issues, from the hairstyles we wear to the clothes we wear? Why do we do that? We like to think it's because we're individualistic, because we're just being ourselves. No, you're not. (laughs) You're following the counsel and advice of all the people around you. And that's okay, because the Bible doesn't dictate those things. The problem comes when we follow the advice of the wicked about issues the Bible does address. Now, how are we tempted to listen to the advice of unbelievers? Well, there are 
so many ways. Let me just call out a couple of, of examples. First of all, I think we're tempted to adopt the philosophies of our time, or at least to be influenced and impacted by them. For example, naturalism tells us that macroevolution is fact. And so what do a lot of Christians, what are they tempted to do? They're tempted to try to find a way to reconcile macroevolution with the Bible, to synchronize evolution with Genesis 1 and 2 by making it less than history. That's simply following the counsel of the wicked. Humanism tells us that, that man is the measure of all things. And while we've moved on from humanism, as, as Dr. MacArthur was saying last night, we just keep adding on to the former philosophies. It's still around and present. So Christians, stop asking what the Bible says about politics or ethics or entertainment or how the church should be run, whether there should be women pastors, etc., etc. And instead, they allow the lies of prevailing human thinking to shape their worldview. Here are just a few of the current lies Christians believe. Truth is relative. There are no moral absolutes. Life is random. The goal of life is your personal happiness. Possessions, they'll make you happy. Science is fact. Christianity is blind faith. Those are just a few of the lies that have infiltrated the thinking in some way or another of many of God's people. We can also be tempted to embrace popular ideas and lifestyle choices and priorities all built on secular advice. You've heard them, things like, it really is all about you. Do whatever it takes to make yourself happy. You have a right to be happy. In marriage, you get to decide what the roles will be. You get to decide how you're going to parent. If you physically discipline your child, even in a controlled, loving way, you're warping your child, in spite of the fact that that's what the Scriptures teach. God didn't determine your sex at birth. You have a right to decide. And what two same-sex adults decide to do in private is their business, and there's nothing wrong with that. Folks, that is the counsel and advice of the wicked. And if you're not careful, you will be influenced by the relentless tirade of those propositions. God says that the righteous man totally abandons the advice of the wicked at every level. Verse 1 adds, he does not stand in the path of sinners. Sinners describes those who have missed the mark, those who have fallen short of the divine standard. Usually in the Old Testament context, it refers to those who have committed specific offenses against specific commands. And notice the psalmist says the righteous person doesn't stand in the path of sinners. Now, the Hebrew word for path is derek. It's one of the most important Old Testament words. It's a word you need to know because it occupies a central place in wisdom literature. It comes from, this word path, comes from a verb that means to tread or to trample. Literally, it refers to the, the path or the ruts that are formed in the ground by feet or carts rolling again and again over the same ground. So it became the perfect word to refer metaphorically to a person's habits or lifestyle. Your path. When I was growing up in South Alabama, our family owned a World War II Red Willys Army Surplus Jeep. Now, we lived on the edge of civilization. In fact, behind us, there were several hundred acres of, of woods and swampland. And it was perfect for me as a kid growing up. I was the last of 10 kids, and I had sole control of the Jeep. And in that Jeep, I, I cut trails all over those woods. Now, if I took the same trail just a few times, the tires began to cut deep ruts in that red Alabama clay, making some spots of the trails I'd cut almost impassable. 
I remember trying to drive some of those older trails and trying to keep the Jeep up on the ridges and out of the ruts. I could do it for just a little while, but it wasn't long, if it had rained recently especially, that I could feel the tires sliding and pretty soon I was back in the rut. The Hebrew word for path is like those ruts you can't get out of. It speaks of predictable patterns of behavior. Predictable patterns of behavior. The psalmist says we are not to stand. That is, we are not to continue or to remain in the ruts, in the predictable patterns of behavior in which sinners live. Folks, that means we are not to adopt the lifestyle of sinners. Look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19. I'm sorry, Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 104. The psalmist writes, From your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, understanding what you've said, I hate every false way. Look over at verse 128. Therefore, I esteem right all of your precepts concerning everything. There's sola scriptura. And because of that, I hate every false way. Now, sadly, I suspect that there may be a few people in this room who are living in an unrepentant way in the ruts which sinners live in. Maybe you are constantly indulging a secret life of sin in which there is an increasing and unrepentant pattern of sin in your life. Listen, if you are hiding a life of pervasive, increasing, unrepentant sin, I plead with you to give glory to God. See it for what it is. Repent of that sin. Plead for God's forgiveness. And talk to a more mature Christian who can help you, direct you, pray with you. But for most of us, I suspect that's not true. So maybe you don't have a secret life of sin, but... You've just gotten spiritually lazy. You don't fight the sin in your life the way you used to. You're in a pattern of, of just kind of giving in and giving up. I love what Jonathan Edwards wrote as one of his resolutions. He said, resolved never to give over nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. Keep fighting tooth and nail. Our Lord taught us that, didn't He? In, in Matthew 5, He said to keep from sin, be willing to pluck out your right eye or cut off your right hand. He didn't mean literally. He meant you need to be willing to get radical in dealing with your sin. Do whatever it takes. Get rid of that smartphone, whatever it is. Cut off your hand, pluck out your eye. If you are tolerating ongoing patterns and habits of sin in your life, you are standing in the path of sinners. There's a third statement of what the righteous man abandons. Notice in verse 1, he does not sit in the seat of the scoffers. The counsel of the wicked has to do with our thinking. The path of sinners has to do with our behaving. The seat of scoffers has to do with our belonging. The Hebrew word translated scoffer, it describes those who are farthest from repentance. Those who openly ridicule and defiantly reject God's rule and God's law. The psalmist says we aren't to, notice, sit in the seat of scoffers. In the Old Testament, the word seat sometimes refers to an actual seat, a chair like the one you're sitting in this morning. But sometimes, as here, it refers to an assembly, whether an official assembly or a social one. So to sit in the seat of scoffers means connecting ourselves to them, whether officially or socially, and connecting in such a way that we're one of them, that we belong. Scripture often reminds us of how important this is. 
David in Psalm 26, verses 4 and 5 says, I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Psalm 119, verse 115, Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Now, you say, how in the world could I, as a a Christian student in a Christian university, sit in the seat of scoffers? Well, let me give you what I think are a couple of the chief ways that Christian students in your position are tempted to sit in the seat of scoffers. First of all, by spending a huge amount of your time reading books, reading articles, visiting websites, listening to music, watching movies and TV programs that are written or performed by those who openly repudiate or ridicule the Christian faith and who in their entertainment are preaching their worldview. If you want to know this is, if this is a problem for you, just look at your playlist. Or consider the worldviews behind your favorite video games or songs or movies or TV programs. I think a second way that we can be tempted to sit in the seat of scoffers is by choosing as friends those who regularly mock or laugh at spiritual things. And yes, that can happen in a Christian university just like this one. We cannot belong to the assembly, socially or officially, of those who are scoffers. Now, I don't want you to miss the main point the psalmist is making in verse 1. Look at those three nouns again. The wicked, sinners, and scoffers. That is not a subset. Those are not three subsets of sinners. No. Those words together include all unregenerate men. Every unbeliever, without exception, is in verse 1. The point the psalmist is making is that the righteous man completely abandons every path of all of those who live in rebellion against God. In other words, he abandons every human way. He abandons thinking like they think, living like they live, belonging where they belong. Let me just say to you, if that's not your commitment, you will never be Esherah. You will never be spiritually prosperous. John Calvin writes, No man can be duly animated to the fear and service of God and to the study of His law until he is firmly persuaded that all the ungodly are miserable and that they who do not withdraw from their company shall be involved in the same destruction with them. If we want to experience the righteous, enviable life, then we will make two foundational commitments. First of all, we will abandon every human way. And secondly, we will embrace only God's way. This is a call to sola scriptura. Notice verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord... And in his law, he meditates day and night. Do you see how shocking that is? The psalmist reduces his entire positive description of the righteous man in this introductory psalm. He reduces his entire description of him to his response to the Scripture. Derek Kidner writes, The psalm is content to develop this one theme, implying that whatever really shapes a man's thinking shapes his life. Now look at the the Hebrew word, or the word law, that's the Hebrew word Torah. It's a rich, multifaceted word, and a word I don't have time to trace down all of its distinctions, but the basic sense of it is instruction. It is instruction in the Father's will for His children. Eventually, this word Torah, translated law here, came as it does here to refer to the entirety of God's revelation. The psalmist's point is this. You can identify a truly righteous life 
by how that person responds to God's way revealed in Scripture. Notice how he says he responds. First of all, he delights in it. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. The word means to take pleasure in something, to experience emotional joy, delight. Ten times in the Old Testament, this word is, is used of desire. In fact, one of the interesting uses of this word comes in Psalm 107, verse 30, where, where it's used of experienced sailors who are caught for days on the Mediterranean in the worst storm of their lives. And when they have completely exhausted their skill, their chief desire is to be back on land. Can you imagine what that desire was like? We are to delight in the Scripture in the same way. The righteous man finds his pleasure, his happiness, his delight in the Bible. Job, in Job 23.12, says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. This is a major theme of Psalm 119. Turn there with me again. Psalm 119, I just want you to see this. Psalm 119, verse 14. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Verse 24. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 35, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Verse 47, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love, and I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 77, may your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 143, trouble and anguish have come upon me. So even in the middle of trials, your commandments are my delight. Verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Now let me ask you, ask yourself this question. Is that how you think of the Bible? Is that really how you think of the Bible? If the only time you touch your Bible is to bring it to chapel or to the conference or to Bible class or to church on Sundays, then you don't delight in the law of God. Or maybe you're just a naturally disciplined person or you have a tender conscience, and so you force yourself to spend time in the Bible most days. And by the way, that's good. I don't want to discourage that at all. It's a command. We need to do it. But you can faithfully read your Bible and do it solely out of duty and never out of delight. If you have to admit that you don't really find pleasure in the Word of God, how do you increase that delight? Well, first of all, you examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith. But if you are in the faith, how do you increase that delight? The answer is spend more time. Jeremiah 15, 16, Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Martin Luther writes, The Bible is a remarkable fountain. The more one draws and drinks of it, the more it stimulates thirst. The happy enviable, righteous man finds his greatest delight in the Word of God. There's a second response of the blessed man to Scripture. Not only does he delight in it, but verse 2 says he meditates on it. Notice, and in his law, he meditates day and night. The word translated meditates, it originally described the, the low murmur of the voice as someone quietly read the Scripture out loud to himself or or quietly spoke to himself about what he'd read. It means literally to mutter or to whisper. But the main point of this Hebrew word is not what comes out of the mouth, but, but it's what happens in the heart. For example, in Psalm 49, verse 3, it contrasts the meditation of the heart with the words of the mouth. 
So here in the context of Psalm 1, the word meditate means to reflect, to think, to have a, an internal discussion about the Scripture. Let me give you a definition of meditation. Meditation is deliberately choosing to think deeply about the Scripture. And biblical meditation always has two goals. Goal number one is to better understand the meaning of the text. Meditation brings insight into the meaning of the text through what theologians call illumination. It's like what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 18, God, open my eyes. He didn't mean open my physical eyes. He meant open the eyes of my soul to really grasp and understand your truth. Paul prays this for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. J.I. Packer defines illumination as a work within us that enables us to grasp and to love the revelation that is there before us in the biblical text. Illumination is the applying of God's revealed truth to our hearts so that we grasp as reality for ourselves what the sacred text sets forth. That happens in meditation. But there's a second goal of meditation in choosing to think deeply about the Scripture, not only to understand better the meaning of the text, but also application to plan how to do it. You all know Joshua 1.8. Meditate, but then it says this, so that... For this purpose, meditate for this purpose that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. So to meditate then is nothing more than to choose to think deeply about the word of God in order to better understand it and to devise a plan to carry it out. And notice verse 2. The righteous man does this day and night. What does that mean? You say, you know, I've got a, I got a job, I, I go to school, I've got to study, I'm in class. J.A. Alexander explains what this means in this way. He says, at all times, in every interval of other duties, even in the midst of other duties, this is the theme to which his mind constantly reverts. The righteous love the law of God they think about it all the time so that they can understand it and so that they can do it. They delight in it and they meditate on it because they've been taught by God in the Scripture that the Bible carries His authority and that it is enough. It's all they need. It's sufficient. The psalmist calls you today to make these two commitments, to abandon for the rest of your life every other human way, every human way, and to embrace only God's way. It is in reality a call to embrace sola scriptura, as we've seen. So what are the practical implications of sola scriptura, of this kind of commitment to the scripture? Well, there's so many of them. Let me just give you a few to think about. Here are some practical implications of Sola Scriptura. First of all, everything God intended us to know about himself is in Holy Scripture. Everything God intended us to know about himself, obviously there's general revelation where he's revealed the fact that he exists and that he created all things, his power. But when it comes to saving, sanctifying knowledge, it is found in the Holy Scripture. Everything God will ever say to you in those categories is found between the covers of this book. Don't expect to live your life and to hear God talk to you. Tragically, many want God to speak to them directly, mystically, outside the Scripture. Martin Luther, and this is one of the truths recovered. Martin Luther said, let the man who would hear God speak read Holy Scripture. Number two, another implication is because of this, because of what we studied together this morning, the Bible is eternally relevant you dare belong to a church where they're trying to make the Bible relevant. It is relevant. Thirdly, we must never add to or take away from God's Word. Fourthly, we must not speculate 
beyond what God has revealed in Scripture. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. A fifth implication, no other supposed revelation written or experienced should be added to, considered equal to, or allowed to diminish the authority of the Scripture. The Scripture alone must determine what we believe and how we live. Another implication, and this is so important for you, so important. It's important now in your days of college. It's really important as well when you graduate. You must choose a church that is centered in the Word of God. Biblical churches always are. I was struck recently by the fact that we've all seen, maybe you have a copy of Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible. Great English Puritan. Did you know that that commentary was not the product of his sermons? It was the product of his comments on the Scripture reading during the services in his church. Students, don't join a church. Please don't join a church just because you like how the pastor dresses or because you like the style of the music. In fact, let me give you a practical assignment that will help you in deciding what church to attend. Keep track. I mean this really. Keep track of how long the pastor spends actually explaining, reading, explaining, and applying the text of Scripture Explaining what the biblical text says and what it means. Time him. And if it's only a small portion of the sermon, I will guarantee you that man is not confident in the sufficiency of Scripture. Another implication is that you must be a diligent student of the Bible yourself. In other words, sola scriptura isn't just a doctrine to be believed. It is a commitment you must make daily if you really believe in sola scriptura, then you will be like the righteous man in Psalm 1 who loves and delights in and meditates on the scripture as a regular pattern of life. Do you understand that you are required to believe the Bible's perspective on everything? That's what the Lordship of Christ means because it's God's perspective on everything. Psalm 1 was deliberately stationed at the entrance to the Psalms because it calls on every person who wants to approach God in worship to make a choice between these two ways. It's a choice you have to make today, every day of your life. There's the way of the Bible, and there's every other way. Let me challenge you today. This year we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Let me challenge you to determine that from this day forward in your life, the controlling principle that dictates everything else will be sola scriptura. What does the Bible say? If you're willing to make that commitment, let me give you a, a biblical reference to which you can dedicate yourself that can serve as the motto of your life. As I mentioned before, my father-in-law was C.W. Smith, before I married his daughter, I had him for a number of classes, including several in Greek. One lesson I learned from him stands out above all others. For the 50 years that he taught theology, hanging over his desk, there was a little plaque, and on that plaque was just four Greek words. They were from 1 Corinthians 4.6. And in our Greek class, he pointed out that in that verse, there is an unusual use of the definite Greek article, it's used to introduce a common saying. In other words, here is a common saying that was prevalent in the early church. In Greek, it's mehuper hagagraftai, which translated means not beyond what has been written. Not beyond what has been written. May God write that verse on your heart. And may it become, as it was for him, and by God's grace as I'm endeavoring to make it, may it become for you as well the guiding principle of your life. 
May you be devoted to sola scriptura, not beyond what has been written. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the amazing gift you've given us in your word. Use it, O oh God, in our lives. I pray for each of us here. Lord, help us to make the commitments that you call on us to make, that the psalmist calls on us to make in Psalm 1. Father, may we abandon every human way, thinking like they think, living like they live, belonging where they belong. And may we instead pursue a life of sola scriptura, where we delight in and love and meditate in your law and by your grace, as our Lord did, live in keeping with what it, we learn, what it teaches. Father, help all of us to make that commitment from the bottom of our souls to you because this is your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name.